be reading from Hebrews, starting in chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we were headed north on uh, Wright Street toward East Euclid Avenue in a not that bad, but still not that great part of Des Moines, Iowa. I was riding shotgun. Jenna was driving because I just finished a marathon six-hour-long drive to Des Moines from Fergus Falls, Minnesota, where I was doing my summer internship. We had just begun dating, and I think I was still in that state of shock and amazement and sort of panic that every young computer geek with poor grooming habits faces when they realize there's a girl that likes me. Like, this, this is not my normal. This is weird. I, I, don't, I remember, you know, the, the place on the road where I experienced, and I don't know the physiological whatever for it, but like this sudden realization where all of a sudden your body goes cold and you start sweating and all this because you've just thought of something that changes everything. And the thought that came into my mind was, what if she realizes I'm not good enough? What if she realizes I'm not good enough for her? And I sort of started to have this, this little panic. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this was the moment that I almost ruined our relationship forever. Because I tried to ask her in this sort of coy, playful, very desperate way, explain this to me. Why exactly do you like me? Yeah, it's a real, you know, it shows a real level of confidence there when you ask a question like that. The thing is, I wasn't fishing for compliments. I legitimately was honestly confused by the whole thing. I could not fathom the idea that riding next to me was a person as beautiful and self-confident as her and that she liked me. Whatever answer she gave me wasn't satisfactory because I kept coming back to the question over and over over the next couple of months, I assume sounding more and more desperate every time, uh, until finally, I think Jenna at one point in exasperation just told me, look, if you don't think you're worth dating, then nothing I can say to you will change your mind. So I took the hint, I shut up, and we've been happily married since then. (laughs) See, I I live with this almost uh, 
constant and profound sense of personal inadequacy, like why would anyone want to be friends with me? Why would anyone want to spend their life with me? Which of course manifests itself in all sorts of unhealthy ways, but that's not really the point. The point is, I don't think I'm the only one. I don't think I'm alone in this. Some of you were chuckling a little too self-consciously uh, as I told my story because you've been exactly there. But I, I think most of us are in something like this when it comes to a fundamental sense of our understanding of who we are and what we are worth. Otherwise, why would we try so hard to keep telling ourselves, no, you're worth something? If you have to keep telling yourself over and over, then you don't believe yourself. Or else why would we try to work so hard to prove to everyone else that yes, we are worth something, we are worth loving, we are worth being in a relationship with? See, in my relationship with Jenna, at that early level of dating, I had this internal sort of subjective sense of just not being good enough. Of course, it wasn't based on any objective reality, an external reality. We were both two sinners dating each other, so neither one of us was worth the other. I say that now to make myself feel better. But that internal sense of, I'm just not good enough, is something that most of us live with because whether we acknowledge God or not, we stand before God with that question echoing around within our souls. Am I good enough to be loved? Am I good enough that whatever created all of this whew, would care about me? Am I good enough? It's that question that's sort of echoing in the background of the passage that we're looking at today, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. The author of Hebrews is telling us about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, the Son of God, and his priestly sacrifice on our behalf. And for most of chapter 9, he's using as a background analogy the annual Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur ceremony. You know, this is the one where the high priest uh, exiles himself from everyone for a week, and then he uses the blood of bulls and goats, calves, to purify himself and his garments and everything he needs in order to enact this ritual. And then he goes into the Holy of Holies through the curtain. He goes to where God's presence is and he sprinkles this offering of blood on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And he offers the atoning sacrifice and everyone outside is waiting with this question in the back of their minds, is it good enough? Is this offering good enough? Are we going to be okay until next year? And the high priest comes back out. If the offering is accepted, he comes back out, and the people relax. We're good. But the priest, the high priest doesn't really get the chance to relax. He's got to go right back to work taking care of sins until the next year and the next Day of Atonement. Will we ever be good enough is the ongoing, repeated, echoed question all throughout the Old Testament and the Old Covenant sacrificial system. And the author of Hebrews is looking back at that system and saying, no, no, you won't. 
No, not until, not until there's a new mediator, a new priest, a new person who enters into the presence of God and makes the sacrifice once and for all. Of course, he's talking about Jesus. We know that because this is a Christian church. He's talking about Jesus. He's been explaining it all the way through here. And as we get into these, uh, these verses today, verses 15 through 22, uh, we're talking about Jesus, again, being our greater mediator, the mediator of a new covenant, a new covenant that is greater than the old covenant because of its permanence, because of its effectiveness. And as we walk through these verses, three, uh, we'll call them qualifications, come out. Three reasons why Jesus is able to be our greater mediator. He's the one who gives a better guarantee. Jesus is the one who dies a better death. And Jesus is the one who provides a better purification. All right, so verses 15 through 22, as we walk through this, three main qualifications for why Jesus can be our greater mediator. He gives a better guarantee, he dies a better death, and he provides a better purification. Jesus, our greater mediator, the one who inaugurates the new covenant and once for all answers the question, are we good enough? Let's jump in and take a look at these qualifications. First, he gives a better guarantee. This is in verse 15. See, if Jesus is going to be our greater mediator, if he's going to bring about the new covenant that answers the question, are we good enough, he has to give a better guarantee. And after I titled this sermon, Greater Mediator, uh, Pastor Jeff pointed out that he'd already used that title back in Hebrews 5. Technically, his title was Better Mediator, so you could say my title's greater, but... Nonetheless, it feels a little bit like we've traveled this ground, we've covered this idea already, and we have, except here, now, uh, our author is beginning to argue for the institution of this new covenant. He hadn't brought it up yet in chapter 5 when he talked about Jesus as our better mediator there. Now, in this context, he's saying there's a new covenant better than the old. That makes him, again, a better mediator. Here's why, he says. Now, usually when we use the term mediator... We use it to mean something like a neutral third party, right? Two people are fighting, two groups are in conflict, and a neutral third party with no emotional attachment to either group comes in and stands in the middle, in the median, that's why they're called the mediator, stands in the middle and arbitrates between the two sides, helping them come to an agreement. But when we look at verse 15, though, I don't think that's exactly the nuance of mediator that's coming through here. Take a look at the verse. It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And as we'll explore a little bit later, the death is his. Not too many arbiters, mediators, come to the middle and then die on behalf of the parties involved in the conflict. Something else is meant here by mediator. And I think what nuance we're supposed to read into this is this sense of a mediator as a guarantee, as a guarantor. Now, a guarantor is the the person or the thing that guarantees an agreement, right? I had a handshake agreement with uh, one of the parents in between services who was going to go to class and leave their teenage children in this service on their own. And I said, I will keep watch over them while I'm preaching and call them out if necessary. And she said, will you shake on it? 
said, yes, I will. And that handshake becomes the guarantee, right? If I don't live up to my side of the bargain, she can say, you shook on it. That was the guarantee. Jesus provides a better guarantee in the sense that he's the mediator, the one who is coming to stand in the middle, bringing the promise from God, saying, look, here's the promise. I'm in the middle. I'm the one here. I'm the guarantee. I'm the guarantee of the promise, Jesus says. I'm guaranteeing this. What God says is going to happen is going to happen. I'm here. I'm the guarantee. So in saying that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenants, the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the guarantee of the new covenant, or more technically, the guarantor of the new covenant, because he's guaranteeing that the promises of the new covenant are effective and are available. It's those promises that are important. Look again at verse 15. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Notice he doesn't say so that those who are called may receive a promise of an eternal inheritance, right? That pushes it off into the future, that you get the promise now and the inheritance later. What he says is, He's come as the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise, the promised eternal inheritance. We may receive the inheritance now. Now, that's going to be significant as we we go on, but for now, just looking at it, I want to make this point. Jesus didn't die, the author's telling us. He didn't die to make a promise to us. He died to keep his promise to us. And that's important enough, I'll just say it again. Jesus didn't die to make a promise to us. He died to keep a promise to us. A promise with some immediate right now effects and also some future ones that we could talk about in a different sermon. But the point is, he didn't come and sacrifice himself in order to promise us some blissful future way off way off down the road. He came, he sacrificed himself for us in order to give us the inheritance that had been promised already. Jesus died to keep a promise to us. So you're probably wondering, well, what's the promise? What's the inheritance? And actually, we already know because Pastor Jeff covered it a couple weeks ago. It was back in Hebrews chapter 8, where the author is quoting one of the New Covenant texts, Jeremiah 31, 31, and following. He says some things like this, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, the author's been establishing this argument that there is a new covenant coming for the people of God, a new covenant that's better than the old covenant, a new one in which God will be merciful. He's not going to remember the sins of his people anymore, which means no more will the people of God be separated from the presence of God by the, the spiritual defilement that we brought on ourselves by our sin. No more will the people of God be separated from the presence of God by our inability to to live into the way he designed us to be. 
no more will the people of God be separated from the presence of God by our, our wanton and overwhelming desire to just grab control back and do it ourselves. No more will the people of God be separated from the presence of God by our deep-seated, almost paranoid fear that we're just not good enough. They shall all know me, God says in Jeremiah 31. Under the new covenant, they shall all know me. We will all know him face to face. Not because of some ritual enacted on a yearly or monthly or daily or whatever basis, but because of the once-for-all sacrifice offered by our greater high priest, by Jesus, the one who fulfills the promise that we can be face-to-face with God. He guarantees it. It says the promise of the eternal inheritance is ours now, not off in the future. Jesus himself is the guarantee that the promise of the inheritance is ours. It was a promise made and a promise kept. But to keep it, required death. See, Jesus is our greater mediator because he provides a better guarantee. He's the one coming to the middle and guaranteeing these promises, but he's also our greater mediator because he dies a better death. If Jesus is going to be this greater mediator who answers the question for us once and for all, am I good enough? Are we good enough to be in the presence of God? He has to die a better death. Look back again at uh, verse 15. It says he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them, them being the, redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, them being those who were called. A death has occurred. Why is Jesus qualified to be our greater mediator? Well, one of the reasons is because he died a better death. The, the basis or the, the foundation or the cost of becoming the mediator of the new covenant is the death of the one who made the covenant, the death of Jesus himself. See, the text tells us that his death has redeemed, that it has is, it is paid the price to establish the new covenant. And this is where it, it actually gets a little confusing when uh, Pastor sat down, we kind of talk about the passages ahead of time before any of us have really looked at it or dug into it, just what surfaces right away, and we're reading it going, verses 16 and 17 don't make much sense in the context. Take a look. It says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And it, it seems odd because it's like, okay, he's talking about covenants, and now he's talking about wills, and I'm not really sure I get the connection. But we dug into it a little bit more, and, wouldn't you know it, in Greek, the word for covenant and will is the same word. So it's one word that refers to a range of types of covenants, one type of which is the testamentary covenant, or the last will and testament. You know what wills are, right? It's that piece of paper that says who gets what when you die. When my wife and I were headed to Kiev Theological Seminary a year and a half or so ago, uh, for some reason we were more uh, panicked about that one than we were about going to Spain, and we thought, we need a will. And and we wanted to make sure, okay, who gets Anna if we die? 
Um, who's going to get all of our financial assets and hopefully disperse them in a way that benefits her and pays for college and stuff like that. At least that's what I was thinking about. I think my wife was mostly concerned that her brother, who is allergic to cats, would get all three of our cats. <laughs> now, the will exists. It's sitting in a file folder at home. It's right in the very front of the top drawer of the file, so if, if we die, somebody can find it fairly easily. But it doesn't have any effect until Jenna and I both perish. Now, our nieces know that if we die, they get the cats, even though their father's allergic. Uh, they know they get the cats. I don't think they're hoping we die, but I, I do think they wish that the will were already in effect, that they could appeal to it somehow to force us to give them the cats against their father's will, but they can't. The will is worthless until we're gone. Right? That's, that's the way a will works. And what's going on in Hebrews 9, the author is saying, verse 15, in order for the covenant, the new covenant to be inaugurated, to take effect, there had to be a death. And there's another type of covenant that works the same way, a testamentary covenant or a will. And just as a will doesn't take effect until after the one who made it dies, so the new covenant doesn't take effect until after the one who made it dies. In other words, the new covenant isn't valid until after Jesus' death. The inheritance doesn't come until the one who owns the estate is gone. So I'm maybe 10 or 12 years old looking over my dad's shoulder at a computer screen and it's just covered with numbers. It's a spreadsheet with graphs and projections and columns and ages and all of this stuff. And I don't know what I'm looking at, so I asked dad to explain it to me and he says, oh, this is a projection of mine and your mom's net worth and how much money we want to have when we retire, and, uh, and then how much we want to have when we die. And there were two, I don't understand spreadsheets that well, but there were two things that were really clear to me. One was that the numbers all started out going up, right, and up to dollar amounts that are obscenely high for a 10-year-old. I was looking at it like, my parents are worth 20 million pieces of Bazooka, Bazooka Joe bubble gum, right? Like, that, that was my unit of currency back then. The other thing I noticed is that the numbers went all the way back down to zero. And I asked my dad about that, and he's like, well, my plan is to spend my last dollar on the day I die. I don't know if that's still his plan. I didn't ask because the story is funnier this way. But also because it's a little weird to talk to your parents about like, how much money they're going to leave you when you die, right? You can imagine Thanksgivings, like pass the gravy and also the details of the pecuniary benefits I get on the, your untimely demise. Uh, this turkey is amazing, by the way. Right, how do you have that conversation? You, you don't, because you don't really talk about the inheritance until the inheritance has come, until the one who owns the estate has passed. And, and here in this context, in this passage, the author of Hebrews is telling us, look, the inheritance isn't ours, until the one who owns the estate has died, there's been a death. The will takes effect once the death of the one who made it has happened, and the death of the one who made it has happened. The death wasn't just a tragic accident of history. It was a death that meant something, a, a better death than anyone before. See, if Jesus is going to be our greater mediator, his death had to 
means something more. And in this case, it did, because the entire new covenant hinged on, on Jesus' death. That's what made it take effect. His death is the, the very action that inaugurated the new covenant, that, that brought it to pass, that made it real, that made it take effect. It's, his death is a better death, because the death of the Son of God, the author of the new covenant, began the new covenant promises to us. See, Jesus is our greater mediator. He's qualified to be our greater mediator because he provides a better guarantee, for one, but also because he, he died a better death. And one of the reasons his death was better is that it provides a better purification. It provides a better purification. This is from verses 18 through 22. See, if Jesus is going to be our greater mediator, if he is going to be the one who brings about the new covenant that answers that question once and for all, are we good enough? He has to provide a better purification. He has to make us good enough. And this is where the passage gets kind of a little icky, I guess. There's a lot of talk of blood. Actually, there's a lot of talk of blood from verse 11 all the way through to the end of the chapter, verse 28. And I know we don't particularly like the talk of blood, but look at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Staff meeting this week, I I brought it up for a poll and said, hey, I'm thinking of titling this sermon, Greater Blood. What do you think? And I got three thumbs up and 11, ugh, no, come up with something better than that. See, we do... We don't like really talking about blood, and so we read some of these passages back in Leviticus, and we're like, there's blood everywhere. In verses 19, 20, 21, I'll talk about how Moses inaugurated the first covenant with blood, with a death, the death of bulls and goats. And he takes the blood, and he sprinkles it on all the different important things and consecrates them all, purifies them all that way. It was all necessary. And I know at this point the vegetarians in the room are squirming, but blood is symbolic. It's important. It, it, it means something. And blood, of course, has had uh, kind of a significant place in, in most religions, in most religious rituals uh, across the board. And Christianity and the Judaism from which it grew isn't really all that different from other world religions in this respect. Uh, we find it squeamish today, but blood and the shedding of blood was an inescapable part of life in the ancient Near East. You didn't get to go to the grocery store and get your meat wrapped up in a bunch of extra sheets of plastic so that you don't have to touch the euphemistically called juices uh, of the animal, right? So everybody was intimately acquainted with blood. But it's not, before we go any farther, I want to make sure I point this out, it is not blood itself that is important here, as if it has some sort of material aspect to it that allows it to achieve purification or consecration. It's the symbolism of it that matters. In Scripture, blood symbolizes life, or more specifically, life giving power. Uh, If you're curious, uh, some of the time you could look at Leviticus 17. In that context, God is justifying some of the the laws to Moses. He's explaining why, and he tells them, okay, don't eat blood because the life of living things is in the blood. 
Because of this, God says, I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It's the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood makes atonement. It's, it's what God has set apart for his people to use as a way of purifying, as a way of consecrating things. Not because the blood is special in and of itself, but because it has this symbolic meaning of life-giving power. We use blood the same way, not as in, you know, killing animals and making sacrifices, but in terms of talking about its symbolism. Somebody who's a diehard Colts fan bleeds white and blue. Somebody who's of the more murderous variety is bloodthirsty or cold-blooded. The most important promise you can make as a 10-year-old is a blood oath or a blood pact, right? Blood symbolizes things, and here it symbolizes power, life-giving power. If we were to skim through all these verses, we'd see uh, over and over again blood comes up because blood provides access to God. It consecrates, it cleanses, it's used to inaugurate covenants, it purifies people of their sin. And that last point is what's most important for this text. Uh, If we skip ahead to verse 22, he says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. All of the the instruments used in worship, all of the priests, every step was purified with blood in one way or another, almost everything. If, if you really couldn't afford an animal, there were some other ways, use flour and things like that. But in most cases, blood is used. And then he gives this almost sort of axiomatic statement that we just all take as a matter of fact, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. See, in the Old Testament system, blood is needed for purification, for making clean. Not because it's clean in it itself. It's not soap. But in a spiritual sense, the blood of a sinless substitute, when applied to the sinful person, I don't know, bonds with that sin and removes it in that ceremony. Without a shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Or if you, if you grew up uh, like I did in sort of a kid's Bible memorization program in, in the 90s, you may have memorized this verse with some older language. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, forgiveness and remission, they're both translating the same word, but some of the older translators were trying to get at a nuance uh, of the Greek that we don't particularly hold on in our heads when we talk about forgiveness anymore. Remission, to remit something, is to send it back to send it away. Uh, You know, we usually use it uh, in terms of payments or debts. You remit a debt, you forgive the debt, you send the debt back, you don't owe it anymore. And the way this is kind of constructed, it's saying without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no sending sin back. There's no taking it off of yourself or having it taken off of you and being sent away. In the the greater context of this chapter, where the author's arguing for Jesus' once and for all sacrifice, he's saying without the sacrificial death and the blood of the one who wrote the new covenant, it, it is not possible to take sin and send it away forever. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. We cannot be pure 
inwardly or outwardly, inwardly in a spiritual sense or outwardly in the way we act that out. We cannot be pure without the spiritual life-giving power of blood. Jesus' blood provides a better purification because it has once for all cleansed us of our sins, purified us of our sins. The old authors say, purged us of our sins and sent them away. See, if Jesus is going to be our greater mediator, if he's going to be the mediator of a new covenant that is better, that is greater than the old, he's got to give a better guarantee, die a better death, provide a better purification, which he has. His presence itself is the guarantee that the promised eternal inheritance and all the blessings that come with the new covenant is ours. His sacrificial death is the offering, the shedding of blood that inaugurated the new covenant and provided the inheritance. His blood has provided this once for all purification of our sins. Now, maybe you're thinking, do I really need that? Or, I know I've accepted that, but I still feel not good enough before God. Well, it all comes down to the difference, again, between the subjective and the objective, the internal feeling and the external reality. See, what's, what's happening in this passage is the author's telling us that the outcome of Jesus' sacrificial offering of himself is that every obstacle, every barrier to a relationship with God has been removed. Every barrier has been removed. That is the objective reality. Now, we get to live into that reality and begin to experience it subjectively for ourselves. Back when Jen and I were first dating and I had my extended crisis of confidence and of worthiness, that internal sense of just not being good enough to be with this person, I didn't, I didn't go to anyone and ask for advice or counsel, um, partly because I'm prideful and arrogant, but okay, mostly because I'm prideful and arrogant, but partly because I knew what their answer was going to be. I knew I was going to go and they were going to say, what are you, crazy? Get over it. And if just telling myself, hey, you're good enough, if that were good enough, I would have been fine. Now, like I said, Jen and I were two sinners dating, right? We were on the same level. We were both coming to the other with the same question of, am I worthy? But what finally, over the course of years, uh, what finally created in me a sense of, Yes, I am not just, not just worthy, but lovable, is that Jenna just kept loving me. She just kept loving me, and eventually, because of her love and the actions around it, convinced me that, yeah, I am lovable most of the time, in her case. When, when God comes to us, it's a little bit different. When Jenna comes to me, like I said, we're fellow sinners. We're on the same level. When God comes to us, he comes to us and he says, 
I don't love you because you're worthy. You're not. We're not worthy. That question in the back of our minds, am I good enough? The reason the question is there is because we all know the answer. No. No, we're not. If the answer weren't no, it wouldn't be such an existential problem for us. God doesn't come to us and say, I love you because you're worthy or because you're lovable. He comes to us and he says, you are worthy, you are lovable because I love you. It is God's love and his choice of us that makes us worthy to be loved. It's nothing in us, it's nothing in ourselves, it's nothing in anything that we've done. It's simply his act of coming toward us and saying, I love you. And that's what makes us lovely. That's what makes us part of the family. That's what draws us in. That's what cleanses us. Through his blood that provided purification for our sins, God is saying, I love you so much. This is what I'm willing to give for you. And when I give that for you, it makes you so lovely. So he takes the love of one who comes towards us into the, the middle into the median between us and God. It takes the love of the one coming into that space to convince us that we, through him, can be in relationship with God. And so, really, the only question this morning is, if this is objective reality, have you responded to that love? Are you living in that reality Are you going back to God over and over and over again saying, am I good enough? Am I good enough? If I, maybe if I try this, will I be good enough? He says, no, you're not. That's not the point. My son is. And through him, you are lovable and lovely. Father, you have given us You've given us in Jesus the one who comes to our souls and makes them lovely. We didn't deserve it. We hadn't earned it. It wasn't because of anything of value that we brought to the table, simply because of who you are. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His blood purified us from our sin as we come to him in faith. And having been cleansed, we are your lovely children. Help us to rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen.